the great fundamental issue now before our people can be invaded. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. the future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. Take the red pill. Listen to the right take. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. tired of that intro that is of course the iconic opening sequence of martin scorsese's 1990 gangster classic goodfellas and of course if those of you who keep up with pop culture news are well aware you should already know this you should know why we are opening the show with that particular clip after our usual intro and that is because of the tragic news that the star of that movie the great ray Liotta, passed away on may 26th at the age of 67 years old. He was in the Dominican Republic and apparently died peacefully in his sleep, which that is always a nice thing to hear. So this is another one of those celebrity deaths that really hit me really hard because I love Goodfellas. I love Martin Scorsese. He's my favorite director. Uh, Goodfellas is not my favorite of his movies. I personally, that title goes to The Departed, although I will concede Goodfellas is objectively the best movie he ever made. And I think a huge part of that was Ray Liotta's performance, which I say is one of the absolute greatest movie narrations of all time. I would put that right up there with Martin Sheen and Apocalypse Now. Just an absolutely incredible performance from start to finish, from that opening line right after they pull off a hit 
to all the way to the end of the movie when you watch, of course, the great gangster story, the typical rise and fall, which is very much what Goodfellas is about. So rest in peace, Ray Liotta. You were fantastic. You were you were great in that movie. You were great in Field of Dreams. That's a movie my dad really liked. He's been in a whole bunch of other movies, but he will best be remembered for his role as the ultimate wise guy. You were indeed a good fella. And with that said, we hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, or as Kamala Harris likes to call it, a long weekend. It was definitely a weekend of relaxation for me, and of course, reflecting as always, as the occasion of the holiday Memorial Day should be. And I actually spent it uh, pretty well. I actually, speaking of movies, speaking about Goodfellas, I, on Memorial Day, on Monday, I went to go see the new Top Gun Maverick, and I did not expect it to be as good as everyone said it would be because you know there's movies that like you look at this like this is another recipe for oh goodness we have another sequel coming out 36 years after the original we see this with like independence day and other movies with distant sequels those awful jurassic world movies the star wars sequel trilogies the latest terminator movie and yet this one everybody who saw it before me said oh this is actually a really good movie you have to go see it like the reviewers at breitbart were saying it was good the Critical Drinker, one of my favorite movie reviewers on YouTube, said it was good. So I went ahead and I went and I saw it on Monday. A decently packed theater. And it was truly a great, feel-good, all-American movie. I, I could talk about that for a whole like half hour myself. But I'm going to spare you guys that for the sake of keeping this to the more relevant political topics. But if you are interested in my thoughts on Top Gun Maverick and why you should go see it right now, now in theaters before it's too late... I wrote a review for it at American Greatness, so check it out, amgreatness.com. You can find all of my other works at Am Greatness there under my profile, amgreatness.com slash author slash Eric dash Lendrum. And of course, I will be including a link to my Top Gun review in the description below. So it is once again, ladies and gentlemen, time for election recapping here at The Right Take. We had another week of primaries, and we've got to talk about this one. This one's got to be a topic in and of itself based on what happened. We had the primaries in Arkansas, Alabama, the Texas runoff elections, and we had Georgia. So let's start, of course, with uh, the one we all saw coming, the obvious result, Arkansas. The big race there is their race for governor. There's really no surprise here. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, former White House press secretary and daughter of former Governor Mike Huckabee, easily won the nomination with 83% of the vote. She's widely expected to win the general election and be the next governor of Arkansas. She will be succeeding the outgoing rhino, Asa Hutchinson, a never-Trumper. So that is, of course, a huge win. Alabama, this is a pretty interesting primary when you take a closer look at it. This is, of course, I think one of the first instances, if not the first instance ever, of President Trump rescinding his endorsement. When he originally endorsed Congressman Mo Brooks, who jumped in the race right away, he previously ran for the Senate in 2017 in the special election with Roy Moore. He then came in third in that primary. He chose not to run in 2020 when Tommy Tuberville ultimately won the nomination and easily crushed Doug Jones in the general election. So he finally came around now here five years later. and It's like, this is the one I'm going to run and I'm going to be a senator. And Trump endorsed him right out the gate, then took it back when I guess Brooks stopped talking about voter fraud on the campaign trail or something along those lines. And Trump has yet declined to endorse anybody else. But even before Trump withdrew his endorsement for Brooks, the polling numbers had sagged dramatically into third place behind a former chief of staff for the outgoing Senator Richard Shelby, a woman named Katie Britt, and a former fighter pilot, an army pilot named Michael Durant, whom you actually told me, Jacob, I did not realize this. He was the pilot in the real story of Black Hawk Down. So that, of mm -hmm. course, was a kind of bit of celebrity pizzazz thrown in there. But ultimately, Brooks's numbers recovered in those final weeks, and he managed to narrowly make the runoff with Katie Britt, the final result was Britt way in the lead with 45%, Brooks 29%, and Durant with 23%. What's interesting here is that in Durant, in, this is interesting, I did not see this coming, Durant in his concession statement took some parting shots at Britt, referring to her as, quote, a train wreck, and also vowed he would never run for office again, saying this is a one-and-done deal. So potential sign that Durant's voters could go to Brooks in the runoff election, which may or may not be enough to ultimately help him squeak out a victory, which would be quite a comeback for him to ultimately pull that off after losing Trump's endorsement. Uh, we'll have to see. Uh, Jacob, what are your thoughts on that one? I was really disappointed that Katie Britt got as high as she did. I didn't expect her to get 45% of the vote. If you drive through Alabama, you see nothing but her mug plastered on every billboard from Huntsville all the way to the Mobile. They basically bought up a bunch of uh, billboard space for her. Her ads are constantly running on the radio, constantly. I don't watch TV much, but I'm sure they're constantly running on TV. 
But the, the problem with her is she's a complete no, no name. She used to be, she used to lead the Alabama Business Council. She was the chief of staff for Richard Shelby. She's never held a political office. The average person in Alabama, if you were to go back six months, had never even heard of her before. If you go back a year, hardly only people who were connected to the business community in Alabama, only people who were connected to politics would have ever had any idea who she was. But she's able to project up to 45% of the vote just because of the dollars. It's, it's They simply, Richard Shelby and his pack have bought her a seat at the table. They bought her first place. Uh, Mo Brooks should have been running away with this from the very beginning. There's no reason. I mean, he's a, he's a sitting congressman. He was one of the most prominent Tea Party congressmen elected in the Tea Party wave of 2010. And uh, he's probably the most popular congressman that Alabama has had. Uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe going back to the 30s or 40s. I can't think of anyone definitely within my lifetime or my parents' lifetime who has ever been as popular as Mo Brooks. But just because of the raw dollar power that Katie Britt brings to the table and the business community brings to the table back in her, she's able to project herself in the first place. I was expecting a 35% finish. I didn't expect her to get 45%. So it was kind of disappointing that she was able to get 45%. Just And it shows, it really says something about a lot of the Republican voters of Alabama, that they don't really follow the news. They don't really follow politics. They just want to beat the Democrats and they'll vote for anybody whose name they hear. So they hear Katie Britt on the radio. They're like, oh, okay, she sounds good. She sounds like she wants to take on the left or take on the Democrats. I guess I'll vote for her. And we're so voting for I'm, a woman too, so we're being inclusive. <laughs> so I'm hoping that Durant will that that he will endorse Mo Brooks and that he will throw his voters behind Brooks because if Britt gets in, she's not going to all she's going to do is just rubber stamp everything that mm-hmm. the Chamber of Commerce wants. Exactly. She's just going to be she's literally the the actual successor to Richard Shelby again having been his chief of staff. And like you said, yeah, Mo Brooks, I believe is a founding member of the Freedom Caucus and he's another one of these guys who like David Perdue and Tom Cotton for example, has always been really solid on immigration even before mm-hmm. Trump made it a mainstream issue. So he, he would be a huge win. He'd definitely be a very America first uh, member of the Senate. But we'll have to wait and see. Again, this is still very much Katie Britt's race to lose as you said with the establishment and all that money behind her. So we will wait and see. For some better news, in Texas, we had the runoff elections, and really only two worth looking at, and that is the Attorney General race, the statewide Attorney General's race, and House District 28. Let's start with the race that where we know the results, and that is Attorney General. So incumbent uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton is seeking a third term in office. He's very popular. He, of course, was spearheading the fight against voter fraud in the aftermath of the 2020 election. He was the one who filed that lawsuit uh, Texas versus Pennsylvania that ultimately was seen as like this is the election this is the election lawsuit to end all election lawsuits like a whole bunch of states signed on to that lawsuit on Texas's side and a whole bunch signed on on Pennsylvania side to defend the fraudulent voter practices the vote by mail all the covid measures etc cetera, etc cetera. so this was basically ground zero for the fight for election integrity and Ken Paxton represented that better than I think anybody else in the country but this had led to some controversy because, again, there are some Republicans who still don't believe there was voter fraud in 2020. And he ultimately faced several challengers, the most prominent being George Prescott Bush. And, yes, he is obviously of the Bush family. He is Jeb Bush's oldest son. He is the Texas Land Commissioner. He previously had served two terms as Texas Land Commissioner. He's finishing the second term now. And he decided to throw his hat into the ring for attorney general to mark a potential comeback bid for the Bush dynasty. Now, Bush noticeably is this is the only prominent member of the Bush family, elected member of the Bush family, who supports President Trump and basically says, yeah, he endorsed Trump's bid in both 2016 and his re-election in 2020. President Trump famously once remarked that uh, he's, quote, he's my Bush. So he he likes this Bush. He doesn't dislike him, but he still endorsed Ken Paxton for obvious reasons. And then in the initial primary, I think what really happened here, realistically, this should not have gone to a runoff. The reason it went to a runoff is because Congressman Louis Gohmert, another very popular uh, Tea Party member of Congress, threw his hat into the ring in the last second and decided to run for attorney general as well. And he ended up taking 17% of the vote. Uh, Paxton, for context, got 43% of the vote. And uh, former Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman got another 17.5% of the vote. Bush got 23%. So I could presume most, if not all, of Gomer's voters would have gone to Paxton otherwise. So this really should have not been a runoff at all, but it ultimately kept him just below majority that he went off against Bush, who was the runner-up. And then we got the results of the runoff pretty substantially. Paxton got 68% of the vote to Bush's 32%. So a crushing defeat. And some op-eds are already signaling that this could very well be the end of the Bush dynasty because Bushes have lost their races before, but not by this much of a landslide and certainly not in their home state of Texas. You know, that is the state that created the Bush dynasty. 
So this is a big win for the America First movement because the last thing we need is a comeback from the Bushes that would inevitably see the party shift back to the left on immigration. So that is a welcome result. District 28, this is another instance of Democrat on Democrat violence. I absolutely love this. So as we talked about, Henry Queller, the incumbent congressman there who's a Democrat, has been very vocal in his criticisms of the Biden administration's open borders policy. He's against amnesty. Uh, for context, this district is located right on the southern border of Texas, so that plays a role in it. And he is also a very pro-life Democrat, which given the Roe v. Wade news, is that is the ultimate sin. You do not you are not a pro-life Democrat in this party anymore. They have no room for that. Again, they primaried out Congressman Dan Lipinski in Illinois back in 2020 because he was pro-life. He would speak at the March for Life on a regular basis. And Henry Queller is the last pro-life Democrat in the House of Representatives. So challenging him is a hardcore uh, immigration attorney, which translates to amnesty advocate, named Jessica Cisneros, who's also, of course, pro-abortion. So in the initial primary, he got 48.7 to her 46.6. And which forced a runoff. And right now, Henry Queller is narrowly in the lead. 50.2 to her 49.8. A 0.4% margin, less than 200 votes separating them. About 177 votes right now separating them. Queller went ahead and declared victory, which is a very bold move, Cotton. Let's see how it pays off for him. Cisneros is still holding off for uh, hundreds of possible mail-in ballots, because that's what they do, that presumably would favor her. So we will see how that plays out. Uh, if he loses, of course, that would be the last pro-life Democrat, as I said, in the House of Representatives. And it would really signal another, just the latest hard shift to the left for this party. They have zero tolerance for moderates in their party. You know, they've already had it with Manchin and Cinema in the Senate. And they say, they're basically saying there is no room for moderates in this party when it comes to the House. Although House leadership, of course, does back Henry Queller. And that has led to more clashes between AOC and Nancy Pelosi, which is always a great thing to see because AOC supports Cisneros. So we'll see how this plays out. Uh, of course... The big question is, if she ends up being the nominee, could this district, which is only a D-plus-5 district, heavily Latino, border district, could it then flip red in the general election? So that is a big thing to keep an eye on, this race, this primary. We now have to move on, of course, to the state that, if you're a Trump supporter, this last Tuesday, these elections, it was just, it was, there's no sugarcoating this. I am a diehard Trump fan and I will always defend him and defend most of his calls, even most of his endorsements, although he does make a few endorsements I disagree with here and there. There's no getting around this. If you're a Trump supporter, Georgia, the primaries there were an absolute kick in the balls. Four kicks in a row, I should say. There was one bright spot for Trump, of course. He endorsed Herschel Walker, the former NFL player and also Celebrity Apprentice contestant for the U.S. Senate race to take on the hardcore, crazy black nationalist incumbent Democratic senator that is Raphael Warnock. And Walker overwhelmingly won his primary with 68%. So he is going to face off against Warnock, although that was already kind of a given. They were already kind of preparing for the general election. The governor's race. Jacob, I got to get your input on this one, man. Did you see it being a blowout like this for Kemp as it was? Um, I didn't. I knew Kemp was going to win. There was no question that Kemp was going to win from the very beginning. It was it was a fool's errand to try to get a former failed U.S. senator who lost to what was the guy's little um, John Ossoff. John Ossoff. If you lose to John Ossoff, I'm sorry, but you don't get to run for anything other than dog catcher in the future. You, you remember, John Ossoff was the guy who walked across the district to run in 2017 to try to be the first guy to dethroned Trump Republicans and failed miserably, and then he beat you in a special election, of all things? No. David Perdue should have never signed up to run for that race. He had no business in that race. So I knew he was going to get blown out of the water. I didn't know it was going to be this bad, but it, there was never any question that David Perdue had zero chance of taking down Brian Kemp. Yeah, that, that was the thing is the question is whether or not Purdue, again, as a former senator, you know, statewide name recognition and the, and the Purdue name is big in Georgia. Again, his cousin, Sonny Purdue, was also a governor, but there was hope that maybe he could force it to a runoff, you know, force him below 50 percent and then maybe beat him one on one. I remember watching when they called the election, the AP called the race with 23 percent of the vote in. I, I knew at that point, I'm like, okay, it's over. Because by that point, he had over 70% of the vote, Kemp did. So at that point, it didn't even matter if it was just the two of them and there weren't these other candidates. There were a couple of other candidates. I guess a woman named Candace Taylor was running for uh, governor as well. She previously ran for the Senate in 2020. Uh, final result, Kemp got 74% of the vote to produce 22%. So yeah, there's no getting around that. That is an absolute blowout. And again, this was arguably the marquee primary race in terms of Trump's pick running against an entrenched incumbent uh, establishment Republican like Brian Kemp. So he went all in on David Perdue. He never backed down once. And again, Perdue, besides the fact that Kemp failed miserably to f fight for election integrity in 2020, which is the main reason Trump 
called for someone to challenge him. Like I said, Purdue was always really solid on immigration. He was a solid senator, but apparently just wasn't a strong enough candidate, I guess. Again, like you said, he lost to John Ossoff. I remember in those elections when it was uh, Purdue versus Ossoff and then Kelly Loeffler versus Warnock, I remember thinking, okay, Loeffler for sure is going to lose. She was a horrible candidate. She was appointed to that seat. You know, rich, out-of-touch woman who was one of the senators guilty of insider trading ahead of the coronavirus uh, pandemic and the crash that came as a result of that, along with Dianne Feinstein and a few others. When that scandal happened, I'm like, okay, this woman has to get out of here. She's got to quit. She's got to resign. Get Doug Collins or someone else better in there to have a better shot against this black pastor, this black nationalist running in Georgia, who obviously is going to have a lot more popular support. And of course, she lost. I thought maybe Purdue would pull it off against Ossoff. Because like I said, Ossoff was a failed candidate in that special election. He lost against Karen Handel, the most expensive house race in U.S. history at the time. So I'm thinking, okay, Purdue's the favorite to win here. He ended up narrowly losing. So at that point, yeah, like you said, if he was still a current senator, he might have had a bit more clout and more credibility. But to come back having lost that election, yeah, that, that was that was a pretty important And also the Senate is a step up. Like you'll have a governor who will run for Senate. It's kind of a downgrade. Right. It's, it's like downward mobility. If you are a former senator or a current senator and you decide to run for your state's governor position, that's, uh, that's kind of like a downward mobility. That is true. That is a very good point. Yeah, so – Sorry, Mr. Purdue, Senator Purdue, you, you were a great senator. You know, we'll never forget your efforts to fight immigration, but it looks like there's probably nowhere else he can go at this point. And Kemp is going to be the nominee, and I'll say this much. He's a rhino. He failed on voter fraud, he, a lot of other things. But this is one of those races where I will still take a rhino over the Democrat because the Democrat is Stacey Abrams herself. Absolutely running again. She is horrible. She would turn Georgia into a third world state. So... Uh, I'll I, if I were in Georgia, I would bite the bullet and vote for Brian Kemp. And by all accounts, by all polling, it seems like Kemp will probably beat her. So if he can beat her, then fine. You know, best of luck to you, Brian Kemp. Anybody but Abrams at this point. But it didn't stop there. Oh no, the Secretary of State race. This is one where we thought, okay, maybe Kemp is probably going to win governor, but we could still probably beat brad raffensperger the horrible weasel who failed even more visibly on voter fraud. And then they tried to get Trump on that phone call he had with raffensperger claiming. He was trying to pressure Raffensperger into finding more votes, which is not what happened if you listen to the transcript. Even Raffensperger himself said, yeah, that's not what Trump said. But what? either way, Trump endorsed a challenger to him by the name of Jody Heiss, who was a congressman from the 10th District of Georgia. And that's important because we will come back to that in just a bit. But he endorsed Jody Heiss against Brad Raffensperger, and we thought, okay, surely here he can force a runoff or maybe even win outright. Nope, that's not what happened. Raffensperger ended up winning 52% of the vote. To Heiss's 33%. So he voided a runoff and ended up beating Trump's pick. So that was another surprise I didn't see coming. Again, we thought at the very least maybe this could be a runoff. Nope, Raffensperger won outright. The Attorney General's race. I wasn't even aware of this one, but apparently apparently Trump just went all out against all incumbents in Georgia. He did not support any people running at the state level who were incumbents already in Georgia. The incumbent Attorney General Chris Carr was challenged by a businessman named John Gordon, who was endorsed by Trump. And this was a blowout, even more so than the Kemp race. Carr won 74% of the vote, slightly more, I think, than Kemp's 74%. It was like 73.75%, so slightly higher than Kemp's percentage and versus Gordon's 26%. So a crushing blowout. He's going to be the nominee and will probably win the general election. And then the position of insurance and safety fire commissioner. Don't know why anyone bothered getting involved in this race, but okay. The incumbent, John King was challenged by Patrick Witt, a former Trump administration official who previously was running in the 10th district, the 10th congressional district, which, like I said, that's the race Jody Heiss vacated to run for secretary of state. And subsequently, when Vernon Jones announced he was running for governor, people feared he might split the vote and, you know, spoil Purdue. So apparently President Trump convinced Jones to drop out of that race to run for that 10th district, Jody Heiss's seat, with Trump's endorsement. So... Patrick Witt was running in that primary and said, okay, well, I can't beat Trump's pick you know, for this particular seat. I'm going to go ahead and drop out and run for uh, insurance and fire commissioner. Why not? So he ultimately ended up running against the incumbent, but then also lost the primary overwhelmingly to the incumbent, John King, who is again going to the general election and will probably win the general election by all accounts. So that is four losses for Trump in one night in one state in Georgia. And for those of you guys who were curious, uh, we mentioned the 10th district, of course, where Vernon Jones ran, the former Democrat, famously a black state senator, former Democrat who switched to Republican in 2020 and spoke at the Republican National Convention. He went all in for Trump. He ended up dropping out of the governor's race to run for the House District 10. And he came in second in the primary with 21.5 percent. 
to Mike Collins's 25.6% in first place. So that will force a runoff, and maybe the Trump vote will coalesce behind Vernon Jones. But that could very well be another loss for Trump So if Jones ends up losing the nomination. So we will keep an eye on that. I wasn't even aware that Jones came in second. I thought he won. I thought he came in first in that race, but he he didn't even he didn't even come in first. What was the? Do you have the numbers on that race? Well, what percentage he got? Mike Collins came in first with twenty five point six percent. Vernon Jones came in second with twenty one point five percent, and then a bunch of other candidates below that. A guy named Timothy Barr got fourteen point three. Paul Braun got thirteen point three. And then there were a handful of other candidates in the single digits. So obviously, if that's, enough, that's bad. That's, that's bad. really bad. Yeah, that is that is quite bad. Yeah, especially because uh, with, again, with Trump's endorsement, I don't know, man. I mean, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. But the bottom line is, what does this math all add up to? Thus far, this now marks seven primary endorsements Trump has lost in 2022 alone. Again, just to recap, because we've done this over the last few weeks, Charles Herbster lost the race for governor of Nebraska. Incoming Congressman Madison Cawthorn got primaried out, as we said. Janice McGeechan lost her bid for governor of Idaho against her own boss. And now you have David Perdue, Jody Heiss, John Gordon, and Patrick Witt all in Georgia in one night. Now, this is where it gets a little bit kind of confusing if you try to count, okay, what con what constitutes a loss for President Trump. If you count the kerfuffles where he rescinded his endorsements for Mo Brooks, like I said, and also Sean Parnell in Pennsylvania, who withdrew after he lost custody of his kids to his crazy ex-wife, that technically makes it nine losses total if you count those. And there's still the possibility, like I said, that Vernon Jones could lose if that happens. That would be eight hard losses and 10 losses overall, which is twice as many as the last five years combined. Like I said, from 2017 to 2021, Trump had made over 400 endorsements and only lost five over the course of those five years, basically an average of one per year. So now in this one year, more losses than we had seen over the course of his entire political career up to this point through his presidency. So I think it's as good a time as any for this discussion. We have to have this talk here on The Right Take. Is Trump's endorsement power really fading, or are these just freak of circumstances? Again, you have four, potentially five losses, all within one state. Uh, Jacob, we, you and I talked about this off the air, uh, and you said there was something about like voters in southern states. You talked about it, you hinted about it with Alabama, the U.S. Senate race, and possibly here in Georgia as well. Are they just more apathetic when it comes to something like the endorsement of a very popular former president? Because obviously Trump's endorsement still makes a huge difference. His endorsement carried J.D. Vance over the line in Ohio. His endorsement is the reason Oz is competitive and could still win in Pennsylvania. If it weren't for Trump's endorsement, he definitely would not be you know, tied for first right now with McCormick. And you could argue also Trump's endorsement did pay off really big for Herschel Walker, but it's paying off in other races. So is this just a matter of geography that voters in certain states care more about their state party? Or is this really, is this what the left has been dreaming about that his endorsement, his popularity is fading? Because obviously, you ask Republican voters this question, overwhelmingly, they still support Trump and want him to run again in 2024. And like I said, his, his endorsement still works more often than it doesn't. But then you have certain states like this where my theory on this, especially with regards to Kemp, are they just terrified of Brian Kemp because he just rules that state with an iron fist? What's going on here, Jacob? What's your take? Well, I don't see why, why would they be terrified of Brian Kemp? Like, what would Brian Kemp do to the voters if they don't vote for him? If he's if Brian Kemp loses the primary, I mean, it's not like he runs a mafia machine. He's going to go around and start killing voters who didn't vote for him. But as far as the, the southern states there, the thing is you can't go against the state parties. You can go against the national party. And this is something the southern parties have always been at, at odds with the national party back when they were Democrats and now when that they're Republicans. But whenever you try to go in and you undermine the state party, you're going to run up against serious opposition. You're not because there is no grassroots effort in any of these states that is actually good. There's no groundswell of support that is at odds with the direction of the state party. So take Georgia, for instance. Trump comes in and he endorses everyone who's running against the state party's preferred candidate. Mm -hmm. OK, so in order for that to happen, think about Ohio. Why did it work for J.D. Vance? In addition to Trump's endorsement, what did J.D. Vance have going for him? Uh, he was the author of the great book, Hillbilly Elegy. Oh, wait, actually, hang on, I'll take it back. That's why I like him, but I, as we said on this podcast, a lot of voters, like the rural voters, the white working class voters, he should be appealing, that should be voting in droves for him. A lot of them didn't read that book. That was more mm -hmm. something for the New York Times critics. I get what you're getting at here, Jacob. Other than Trump's endorsement, prior to Trump's endorsement, he had a, at least $10 million donated to his pack by a guy by the name of Peter Thiel. Yes. So in order now, that's a Midwestern state. But if you're going to come in and you're going to try to buck the state party, which the state party was vehemently opposed to J.D. Vance, mm -hmm. that candidate that you're endorsing 
better have about $10 million in the bank. Yes. And this is something that Trump was not willing to do in Georgia. He wasn't willing to spend 10 to 15, $20 million to back these candidates that he was endorsing. If he had done that, then it would have been a much more competitive. Purdue might not have pulled it off, but it would have been a tight race. So in order to come in and buck the state party, you have to come in and just outspend the state party. And that's expensive. That's incredibly expensive because these state parties, they're backed by the Chamber of Commerce. They're backed by the local business community, like Katie Britt. She used to head the mm-hmm. local Alabama business community or their roundtable or whatever. So that, that's the issue. If you're, You have to get on the good side of the local state parties. Now, if you're coming in as an outsider like Trump, you can make it like you're coming in on the side of the state party against the national GOP. That would work, that type of outsider. Like basically, I'm with you guys, I'm against the national GOP because I agree with your values against their values. You can play it like that, but that's not how Trump's been playing. And another thing we need to point out is with these endorsements, what exactly is Trump trying to accomplish with these endorsements? In other words, what do his endorsees stand for that's different from the people that they're running against? Is there a common thread? Is there a common theme with all of these endorsements that they have in common? In the case of Georgia, as I hinted, I think it seems to be that, you know, Purdue and Heiss and the rest of them would have been tougher on voter fraud than Kemp and Raffensperger were. That's the big contention, at least certainly in Georgia, but in a few other states, but mostly in Georgia. So that, that would be that would be the main issue is voter fraud, cracking down on voter fraud. Yeah. So if that's if that's the theme that Trump is trying to push then that should have been the number one focus. That's what, you know, ads should have been, money should have been poured in, focused on voter fraud. But I don't necessarily know that that's what voters think of when they think of these races. I don't know that they're thinking, okay, I'm going to vote for Purdue over Kemp because I care about voter fraud. I think they're probably thinking about other issues like economics. At this point. Stacey Abrams. Yeah. And at this point, I think most Georgia voters, they just don't want Stacey Abrams. Like they'll take any rhino any day of the week over Abrams. Which again, She's absolutely, she terrifies white people. Like, that's the reality. Stacey Abrams, more than any other black candidate in history, terrifies white people. She should terrify anybody in general. She's actually crazy. She literally wants to turn Georgia into a third world state. She's all about, you know, like, she's all about reparations. She wants, you know, to legalize all these, you know, voter fraud measures that were passed during the coronavirus. Yeah, she is the absolute worst. I would take a rhino. I would take Mitt Romney over Stacey Abrams. All right, Mm -hmm. I would literally have a traitor like Mitt Romney or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski. I would rather have John McCain than Stacey Abrams. That's how bad it's like that's how horrible she is she's one of the absolute worst and Raphael Warnock is another one Warnock is absolutely terrible now not to say Walker is bad I think Walker's great he'll be like a good you know pro-Trump America first senator he won't go out of his way to talk about immigration as much as some of the others you know like Mo Brooks or JD Vance or those others but I would still very much like him in the Senate over someone who's actually insane like Raphael Warnock it's the same with Stacey Abrams you know there's very few people I detest more than her she is terrible but again I guess in this case they wanted someone who is more prepared to who is better equipped to beat her in the general election, I suppose. And this is one more thing I feared, and I I don't think I told you this theory before, Jacob, but this is my theory. I can see Kemp being such a vindictive, sore loser that in the event Purdue primaries him out, because Kemp is still governor for the remainder of the term. He's just not the nominee. I could totally see Kemp using his systems of power, maybe with Raffensperger's help, to spoil the election, to ruin the election, to ruin, undermine Purdue, and let Stacey Abrams win just despite Purdue. I could totally see this guy doing that. I don't know what your take is on that. Well, Raffensperger hates Purdue. I don't know if you remember the the, the rift they had during the 20 election, but they had Fox News had Raffensperger on, and they asked him about David Purdue. David Purdue claimed that he had done enough to stop voter fraud. And mm-hmm. Raffensperger's response was, well, Purdue still hasn't apologized for me for his supporters giving sending death threats to me and my wife. Oh, boy. So Raffensperger hates Purdue guts. I, would not, I don't think Brian Kemp would... I don't think he would try to help do anything to help Stacey Abrams win, but I guarantee you Raffensperger would not care if Stacey Abrams beat David Perdue. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, so that's a good point to make as well. But especially if, again, even if Raffensperger lost his nomination, he would still be Secretary of State for the remainder of the term. So that's the real that's the real tightrope you got to walk on when you're fighting an incumbent who technically is still going to be in power. You know, that's the thing they complain about that they moaned and whined about the Democrats in 2018 when, when Kemp won because he was Secretary of State while he was running for governor and they said you can't oversee an election where you're running that's cheating and of course two years later they ended up cheating on an even larger scale but you know it's just a matter of you know i think at the end of the day the ends justify the means and in this case again i will take someone like kemp over someone like stacey abrams any day every single day of the week she is just the absolute worst all right so now it's time for something a little bit different for you guys here at the right take unfortunately 
certain unforeseen technical difficulties have arisen. Unfortunately, we will not be able to continue uh, this episode with Jacob and talk about the previous discussion we had in mind, but we are still going to talk about the big topics of the day. And for this purpose, I have brought in some backup. A friend of mine, an old friend of mine, from, we go way back, this guy and I, who he, he shares a lot of our views here at The Right Take. I look forward to collaborating with him and other friends of mine and friends of Jacob in the future to turn this into a broader network, a more collaborative effort. I want to introduce to you guys my friend and guest fill-in co-host today, Patrick Von Hanslick. Patrick, welcome to The Right Take. Hi, thanks for having me, Eric. It's great to have you on, my man. Again, like I said, we go way back to, geez, oh, was it seven years ago now, Patrick, 2015? Uh, we first met in a, yeah. a, a little a Facebook group back in the day called Prager Force. Those were uh, those were quite the days. Um, I think uh, for those of you guys uh, who are know well enough, of course, Prager is of course in reference to Dennis Prager. That is the famous YouTube channel Prager U. There was a Facebook group that was created in about 2015 called Prager Force. It was uh, an initiative, I guess, to recruit college students to like bring you know college students together into a network that could share and promote Prager U content through social media platforms and share it in their colleges and whatnot. But my memories of that, and I, with all due respect, I'll make it clear, I like PragerU. I think the work they do is really, really good, and I have a great respect for Dennis Prager himself. But that group, at least when I was there, before I graduated in 2017, all I remember, Patrick, and I think you'll back me up on this one, it was just constantly devolving into arguments between pro-Trump students and anti-Trump students. Because it was during the election, and there were a lot of the never-Trumpers, yeah. you know, the Shapiro types and whatnot. Yeah, there was a lot of, uh, it was, it was... There was a coalition behind Trump. There was also a uh, divided group between uh, what we know today is the neocons and people that are generally around the pro-Trump movement. Exactly, yeah. And the neocons were, were quite fierce. There were the people saying, oh, he's not the second coming of Ronald Reagan. He'll be a terrible president. Rah. They were calling him racist, all that stuff. The tune then changed quite dramatically, of course, once he was elected. I think a lot of those never-Trumpers shut right up as soon as he won the election. And they, they knew they were humiliated. They knew they lost. And they at that point, again, that was also that was the year after uh, the, the year I graduated was the year after the election, so I didn't stick around much longer. They, they don't keep former college students there. It was just college students. So I left at a certain point. But those I did meet a lot of people through that group, including you, Patrick, and including a bunch of people that I'm still friends with and still politically connected to to this day. So it served its purpose well as a good networking group. Uh, so I right. can say safely say I take away fonder memories rather than the less fond memories of arguing with Never Trumpers who ultimately lost anyway. So two big things we have to talk about here. First, the, the big thing, the, one of the biggest pop culture stories in a long time is the Johnny Depp v. Amber Heard trial, which was happening right here in Virginia, of course, because why not? And this was just all over the place. Fox News was constantly covering it. Every time I looked at Fox News at work, it was always covering the Depp v. Heard proceedings, almost like when they were covering Andrew Cuomo's daily coronavirus briefings. It was nonstop. Now, I, I admittedly wasn't too familiar with the facts of the case itself. I, of course, knew that back in 2018, at the height of the Me Too movement, Amber Heard came out with allegations against her uh, then ex-husband, Johnny Depp, claiming, uh, oh, he abused me sexually and physically. He abused me. She basically Me Tooed him. He got canceled. He was kicked off of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. They announced that the sixth, upcoming sixth and final movie is not going to star him. It's going to be an all-female Pirates because that's what we wanted, obviously. That's what the fans want. And he basically couldn't find work anymore. So eventually he came around and said, no, I'm, I'm going to fight back. I'm not going to take this one sitting down. And he sued her after an op-ed appeared in the Washington Post attributed to her that talked about his abuse of her in the broader context of the Me Too movement. He sued her for $50 million. And last week, the jury ultimately ruled in Depp's favor, ordering her to pay $10 million in compensation and another $5 million in punitive damages essentially bankrupting her she came right out and said through her lawyers through her spokesman that she is unable to pay that fine so she is completely she got gawkered she got bankrupted which i think is glorious and I, I of course i i may be a little biased because i did grow up on the pirates of the caribbean movies i love johnny depp in those movies and friends of mine argued with me friends on the right argued and said like why do you support him you know he is anti-trump right he made a joke about assassinating trump and i am well aware of that of course but I think the greater evil here, it, it can be expected that he's going to make anti-Trump statements. He, he's a Hollywood actor. The vast majority of them are going to say things like that just for a quick laugh or brownie points, whatever. I think the greater evil here was the Me Too movement, which undoubtedly took a huge blow as a result of this trial. I think I think this was probably the last nail in the coffin for the Me Too movement. Patrick, what do you think? Well, honestly, uh, though Johnny Depp is not particularly a ally, of ours, there are there is right and wrong, and 
there are a lot of uh, people that made these kind of uh, allegations due to the Me Too movement, and this is the final nail in the coffin. But at the end of the day, um, the evidence from a legal standpoint was overwhelmingly against uh, Amber Heard. And, and Amber, Amber had a lot of uh, issues, I guess we can say, that were put to the forefront. Um, uh, what I have, the problem with the reporting I have is that they tried to portray this as like the biggest trial of the century. Yeah, yeah this does shine a light on uh, gender relations currently. But it it's not by any stretch of the imagination the biggest trial on on planet earth it does not compare it to oj killing his wife it does not compare it to uh casey anthony um, casey anthony you know for that is an example um somehow we we because you know women got hurt it it becomes one of these biggest stories that that have happened um yeah, I think that's, that's my take on it. Yeah, it definitely, of course, it relied very much on the long-standing Me Too narrative that, oh, the, the woman must be believed. The woman's word is taken as gospel, and the man is guilty until proven innocent, basically. And this was a big uh, turning point there, not only because the jury found him guilty. This is not a case of, like, oh, the jury acquitted him even though, you know, popular support, quote-unquote, was against him, like, say, the Rittenhouse trial, where the mobs were demanding he be convicted, but the jury found him, uh, the jury acquitted him. This was a case where public support was overwhelmingly in favor of Johnny Depp, and this is interesting. Among the youngest generations, I, I don't use TikTok, I don't care for it, it's Chinese spyware, but it is the dominant social platform of the Zoomers, Gen Z right now, and reports show that the Justice for Johnny Depp hashtag garnered over 18.8 billion views over the course of the trial, while the hashtag Justice for Amber Heard got just 68.2 million, so a fraction. So overwhelmingly, public support was in favor of Johnny Depp, the fan out outpouring of support. All the protests outside the court were in favor of Johnny Depp, the pro-Johnny Depp signs, and which is interesting because, again, you think this is the same generation that turns around and, and would support the Me Too movement, which ultimately is the final destination of feminism is what it is, quite frankly, a, a society in which women can get away with anything and can be believed on anything, even if the man is, you know, a famous, you know, charismatic actor, one of the biggest stars of modern history. But of course, this was a turning of the tide here. And I do think, yeah, this was the final nail in the coffin, and it didn't start here. I think the beginning of the end for the Me Too movement, Patrick, in my opinion, was the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, when the Republicans actually managed to find a spine and confirm him despite the allegations. That was a big deal. And a huge part of that is that the allegations were not credible. I mean, never mind that the absolute madman literally had a calendar from the 80s showing the exact date the alleged assault occurred and could say, no, my calendar shows I was here. Thank you very much. I was not here. Like, that's so great. That, like, obsessive compulsive, I'm going to record every single day of my life thing. That was great. But then you had another accuser came out, and then you had a third woman come out, represented by Michael Avenatti, who's on his way to jail, by the way. He, he got four more years, just not the way he was hoping for. <laughs> um, this third woman came out, represented by Avenatti, who claimed, oh, I have proof that Brett Kavanaugh ran a, a human sex trafficking ring in college when he was just 20 years old. And at that point, even Democrats like, yo, Avenatti, what are you doing? You're sinking us here, man. And he was like, no, I'm right. I swear this is the truth. I'm going to prove it. And of course it wasn't true so that was the beginning of the end i think and then another one i think you actually told me this patrick off the air that the real beginning of the end was when the accusation against joe biden was not taken seriously and you reminded me i completely forgot about that story that this shows how effective the media is when tara reed a former senate staffer for biden very credibly accused him of sexual assault in 1993 and circumstantial evidence came out including uh, an audio she claimed at one point oh my mom called in anonymously to larry king live to talk about it not naming biden or anything but to say oh my daughter was assaulted by a senator and sure enough people dug up that clip from larry king live in 1993 with caller from san luis obispo california which is where tara reed's mom lived at the time stuff like that that's a credible accusation nope the media buried it because it was joe biden and i think this is probably the yeah. third this is strike three this is the end of the me too movement in my opinion yeah, it's not the first time we've seen uh, Democratic politicians have accusations buried against them. And just as of recently, like Andrew Cuomo mm -hmm. uh, and a plethora of others. And it's it's honestly shows the hypocrisy and the double standard that, you know, that conservatives have to live by. Um, and it's not even just conservatives anymore. It's it's more so like their group. Um, you know, it what what this what this trial shows is it's pretty emblematic of uh you know 
how ideological people can be and how far they can be driven, even even though like evidence is clearly in their face. Um, mm-hmm. Like for example, there's woman from the Guardian. Uh, she she basically is calling the trial like false. Like all the all the information that's coming out is false and it's misogynistic. The whole nine, and literally like it's honestly laughable at this point. Like if if you you know, stand with a certain person because of, you know, the same gender. Like, uh, how can we trust these people to vote? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, if they're so blindly, they're, they're going to follow this ideology to the ends of the earth because of X factor, like man or woman who's making the accusation. And yeah, you are seeing a lot of them, a lot of great coping from the left about this, uh, including from Tarana Burke, the woman who claims to have started the Me Too movement. She issued a statement after the John Depp verdict uh, declaring... Uh, you can't kill us. We are beyond the hashtag. We are a movement. The Me Too movement isn't dead. The system is dead. She also described the trial itself as, quote, a mockery of assault, shame, and blame, and also called it, quote, a toxic catastrophe and one of the biggest defamations of the movement. Again, in reference to the anti-Amber Heard sentiment, basically saying, like, oh, this... She basically took Amber Heard's side, and naturally, as the woman who claims to have created the Me Too movement, she's going to cope and say, like, oh, no, this isn't the end. This is this movement is stronger than ever, even though the evidence overwhelmingly shows that that is very much a sinking ship that is sinking around her, that even the rats have fled up at this point. It can still work in certain cases. I mean, we think back to, of course, when it was at peak in 2017, Harvey Weinstein, it just exploded from there. It took out Roy Moore in Alabama. It took out Al Franken. And it did work recently against uh, Trump's endorsed candidate for governor of Nebraska, Charles Herbster, who, of course, once he was running for governor and was likely to win, suddenly a bunch of women came out of nowhere to accuse him of sexual assault. Huh, funny how that happens. And unfortunately, that did cost him the nomination. He narrowly lost. And we saw it uh, again with also with Elon Musk, this uh, SpaceX flight attendant who suddenly said, oh, he, uh, you know, tried he tried to pay me a quarter of a million dollars to silence me after he sexually assaulted me, which, again, he himself said convenient how like at, even through the entirety of the Me Too movement in 2017, 2018, I was still as rich and famous back then as I am now and no one accused me then. But now once I'm trying to buy Twitter and stop the left censorship efforts, suddenly they have an accusation against me now. So it's, it's so blatantly political. No one buys this anymore. And I welcome the end of the Me Too movement because, again, it was the final destination of feminism. And this is a huge setback for feminism, which is one of the most destructive forces in America today. So now we have to move on to, of course, the main topic of the day. There is no way we couldn't talk about this, given, of course, the last few mass shootings that happened recently in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. What else are we going to talk about besides the left's favorite topic right now? Their favorite get-out-of-jail-free card when things are going horribly for them literally everywhere else and every other issue you can think of today? Gun control. They are at it again. They want to take away your guns. They are waging war on the Second Amendment. And they really seem to be taking it even further this time than they usually do. So, Patrick, what's your take on the left's latest you know, 972nd push for gun control? Well, I guess... It, it's honestly pro, uh, you know, own your own guns. But um, I think the biggest, uh, the biggest threat right now to gun control is what's happening over in Canada, where uh, you see those taking away handguns, you know, and it, it just shows that the slippery slope is not a fallacy. It's just, it's something that will happen in the near future. You know, um, you have a lot of uh, conservatives are still trying to, you know, play, operate in good faith with mm-hmm. the left, but it's kind of obvious now that they are not playing on the same rules. They will infringe on your rights, infringe on the Second Amendment to take, you know, whatever little rights you have to win elections. Um, and uh, it shows that they're also lockstep, you know, that they're in lockstep with all of these, you know, different issues, and especially gun control. Um, it's something that I wish we had a little bit more on the right, because um, we are a little divided when it comes to, like, uh, uh, gun control and all uh, these red flag laws, and you see people on Fox now advocating for red flag laws, which mm-hmm. clearly do not work. If you need to check, check the stats. But uh, please go over there. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to think, like like you said, that this is the slippery slope is definitely not a fallacy. The whole advancement of the gay rights agenda proved that we went from in less than ten years legalizing gay marriage to now three-year-olds can determine their gender and we can mutilate them surgically, you know, because we think that they are a different gender. So absolutely, the case is the same here in gun control. Never, yeah, we should never try to operate in good faith. We should never assume, rather, that the left is operating in good faith. That's how 
for example, uh, Ronald Reagan negotiated, signed that 1986 amnesty bill into law, assuming the Democrats would follow up with a border security bill, which conveniently never happened. So it's the same thing here. I do think gun control certainly, or the Second Amendment rather, is one of those few issues that really does unite the American right more than anything else. I would say alongside with maybe abortion, I would say certainly being pro-life, especially these days with the news coming up that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned any day now by the Supreme Court. So we're seeing plenty of pushback, and but there still is, of course, every time one of these shootings happens, they never fail without hesitation. They immediately got to make it about guns. They go after the NRA. They say that, you know, we got we to pull advertisers from Tucker Carlson. It's the same rinse, wash, repeat. It's the same tactics over and over and over again. But again, we're still living in the age of the Trump era GOP, which is why it was so encouraging to see because the NRA was having their big uh, convention right after the Uvalde shooting. And you saw people announce that they were going to pull out. Several Texas politicians pulled out because it was in Texas. But, of course, one Republican who did not back down, he held his ground and went to speak at the NRA, is President Donald J. Trump. There's always a grotesque effort by some in our society to use the suffering of others to advance their own extreme political agenda. Even more repulsive is their rush to shift blame away from the villains who commit acts of mass violence and to place that blame onto the shoulders of millions of peaceful, law-abiding citizens who belong to organizations such as our wonderful NRA. When Joe Biden blamed the gun lobby, he was talking about Americans like you. And along with countless other Democrats this week, he was shamefully suggesting that Republicans are somehow okay with letting school shootings happen. They're not okay with it. This rhetoric is highly divisive and dangerous, and most importantly, it's wrong. It has no place in our politics. As always, in the wake of these tragedies, the various gun control policies being pushed by the left would have done nothing to prevent the horror that took place. Absolutely nothing. He is holding firm. He's standing his ground, as we all should be, with the same mindset that Charlton Heston had when he famously raised the musket above his head and said, from my cold, dead hands. I think it is more likely to backfire on the left because they don't know this because they live in a bubble, but gun control is still one of the most overwhelmingly unpopular positions they have. They do a good job at tugging at the emotional heartstrings, sure, every time a shooting like this happens, but at the end of the day, you pull independents and moderates. They are still against gun control. They acknowledge the Second Amendment is still the law of the land in our country, and that is why it is so important we are not in Canada. And you referenced what's going on in Canada, and we actually have that clip here. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Unbelievable. You will no longer be able to buy, sell, or transport handguns anywhere in Canada. And there's so much, again, I wish you guys could see that video. That video, he's standing there making that speech and there's a bunch of government officials behind him. They're all wearing masks and he's the only, they're still wearing masks in Canada in 2022. Imagine that. And he's the one not wearing a mask. It looks like something out of a dystopian sci-fi movie. It really is terrifying. Again, especially to hear such an effeminate little beta male like him be the one to make this declaration. <laughs> he really does take after his father and that's his real father. I mean, his biological father, Fidel Castro. He's taking after, he's making his daddy quite proud. But that is why the Second Amendment is so important. And I think when the left continues to get angrier and angrier and they continue to say things like what Joe Biden says, man, come on, man, you couldn't buy a cannon in 1776. Uh, yes, you can actually. Jonathan Turley debunked that. But this idea that like the Second Amendment itself is obsolete and outdated, the left unironically runs with that. And again, it does not work for them. And I think this given this again between this and abortion which is all they have to run on now in the midterms, given inflation, gas prices, grocery prices, disasters in Afghanistan and Ukraine, everything else just declining confidence, nothing working in their favor. All they have to go on offense is we support killing babies and we want to take away all your guns. They really have nothing left. And I think, of course, it's not going to work for them, but it does show their true colors. 
And it's something we need to pay attention to. Like I said, Me Too is the final destination of the feminist movement. And I think something like what you just heard from Canada is the final destination of the gun control movement. Yeah, they, they're normally pretty good at branding. And uh, it's pretty hard to brand. Hey, uh, I know that these elections have seemed a little uh, wonky. And I know that we want to, you know, kill your babies. But, hey, we should definitely take away guns so that we can protect kids in schools. That doesn't make any logical sense. Of course not, especially when, you know, you look at what happened in Uvalde and you're looking at the increasingly bleak picture of the cops response in Uvalde. And of course, I I had friends of mine who were sharing that one video, that video filmed by a parent of the cops just standing outside the school, apparently not doing anything. And I remember the George Floyd video. I said, "Okay, let's not rush to judgment based on one video. Let's wait a little bit and see what happens, see what more comes out. Maybe there was something. There was another strike team somewhere else getting ready to go in. And these cops were the ones just setting up the perimeter. Let's wait and see what happens. But increasingly, it does actually look like the police failed objectively there. You had one spokesman for uh, that sheriff's department in Uvalde saying, oh, well, we didn't want our officers going in because they were afraid they could get shot. I'm just like, dude, that's literally your job. What the hell that's are you talking point. about? Yeah. That was <laughs> so cringe. That was embarrassing. But this is for the proof that in some cases, when the police, obviously when response times are longer, they can't get there right away. And then when they do get there, maybe they won't respond and help you right away. You having a gun, a private citizen having a gun, is far more important than just relying on the police and hoping the police will show up. Yeah, no, you definitely can't. Um, the, the, the end of the day is like, we, as much as, you know, we love our police, you know, they, they do a fantastic job more often than not. Um, you, you can't uh, automatically back the blue every single time in every situation because they're not all going to handle every situation perfectly. They're humans, you know, and I think we kind of forget about that a little bit. They are humans. Um, I guess the most gut-wrenching part of the story was when uh, I heard that a kid uh, called out after a policeman asked him to and got shot for it. Um, even with the people that were in there, that were handling it, they didn't handle it the right way. So I guess what, what we always talk about, oh, we should do something, we should do something. But like, there's nothing that we, you know, as sad as it sounds, that we can't do. You know, um, the, once the moral outrage dies down, uh, I think people will start to understand that. Exactly. Yeah, it really was a heartbreaking scene. And again, to see the other stories we saw from there, like a, a mother, a hysterical mother who tried to break through the police line and run into the school to save her kid herself, they were forced to restrain her and handcuff her. And again, I had some friends argue with me like, you know, this is this is so messed up. What are the cops doing? If they're standing around not doing anything, we should just let the parents go charge in there. And I'm like, OK, I mean, that's not going to help. You're just giving the gunmen more targets to shoot at, especially when they're hysterical and not in the right state of mind. But that situation shouldn't have happened because the they should have been doing better if, by all accounts they should have been or at least conveying to the parents that they were doing something so you don't have a situation where parents are trying to breach the crime scene perimeter you know you've got to be able to show that the response is being is swift and effective but i think to go back and to tie this into the me too thing a little bit actually to kind of connect both of these topics if you you are right that there's very little we can do but if we're going to be completely honest we need to look at the broader cultural problems that lead to situations like this. And of course, the left rushes to say, oh, it's not mental illness. That's an excuse for you know, to let white shooters get off scot-free. And no, first off, that's not the excuse at all. They, Of course, that's usually the case, regardless of what skin color the shooter is. But the fact of the matter is that the mental illness is a factor. And when you look at school shootings overall, mass shootings in general, but especially school shootings, I, th I think um, I... I'm correct in saying, Patrick, you're not going to find any case of a female mass shooter. Am I right? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It's always men. It's always younger men. And there's a reason for that. This Now, of course, again, the left will say, that's toxic masculinity. That's action movies and violent video games that make them want to shoot up a school. No, that's not it either. You look at a lot of these cases of, you know, whether it's the shooter in Uvalde, whether it's the, the Parkland shooter, whether it's the Columbine shooters, whether it was the Virginia Tech shooter. These shooters almost always, before they carry out their crimes, they show some kind of signs of, you know, mental instability, delusions of grandeur, schizophrenic episodes, whatever, and no one ever does anything to try to help them. No one tries to give them the mental health they need. 
and especially these days in the era of the Me Too movement and the emasculation of the American male, where increasingly they're told, you know, you're a man, you're toxic, you're automatically sexist, you're, you're horrible, you need to apologize for the sins of past men, kind of like they tell white people to apologize for the sins of past white people. You combine that with the situation where a lot of times, and certainly in the case of the Uvalde shooter, uh, from what I understand, his dad was not around. You know, you look at fatherlessness in a lot of these situations and this the lack of a male role model in their lives and seeing any semblance of male role models they can look up to being torn down by this society, this culture, and it then contributes to something like this. I'm not saying that's the sole reason, but that definitely is a broader societal cultural thing we need to look at and seriously evaluate if we want to actually be serious about stopping things like this from happening again. Well, hey, not for nothing. Um, there, there, it could say, you know, there's a lack of fathers, you know, there's lack of, uh, you know, I guess a male guidance in their homes. But at the end of the day, there hasn't been these historically this many school shooters, you know, in our country's history. Um, the, it's it's been relatively low. We've always had guns. Um, we've always had males, and there was there were, there weren't that many. Um, what has changed from then and now? Well, the culture has changed. Um, like you said, we live in a misgendered culture, which is like the opposite of misogyny. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have a I mean, I'm, I don't want to hit, hit home on the video games because, like, <laughs> like not all video games are like that. But that's such a there, 90s there thing, yeah. Things, yeah, yeah. There, there's there are certain, uh, you know, I guess elements in the media that do cause people to, you know, embrace degeneracy and like, uh, I guess among, among other things like radicalizing uh, certain youth. But we won't ever hear that because they don't want to be held accountable for that. Exactly, yeah, and I think a lot of these problems are also exacerbated, uh, certainly by the rise of social media, that you have all these things, like you said, exposure to degeneracy, things like OnlyFans and TikTok and whatnot at increasingly younger ages, and making them even more readily available as like an object of desire for young men in a culture where, and naturally young, you know, hormonal teenagers and young adults want that kind of thing, but then again, they live in a society where, no, that's toxic behavior, you know, that's, that's toxic masculinity or whatever. It's just compounding it even more. On top of all the other problems with social media, like whether it's, you know, the echo chambers of, you know, uh, increased bullying. Bullying is now even more easier to do on social media than it is to do in person, as it used to be back then. There's just so many things wrong here that we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but it is a much broader issue that is not going to be solved by any one particular solution on the right or the left. But at the end of the day... The left, I think they know that. They know that taking away guns is not going to solve the issue, but they know it's going to take away the ability of Americans of a different political opinion from being able to fight back when the going gets tough. We saw it during the coronavirus lockdowns and the race riots in 2020. They want Canada. They want Australia to happen here. Right. My, my biggest intention with uh, saying, oh, it's toxic masculinity and, you know, also things, okay, so where is the toxic masculinity coming from? And how does it occur? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we go back, it's historic and, oh, it's, it's genetic. No, like, how does it occur? How can we, there, there is no stopping something like that. So that clearly lands flat on its face, you know. Um, and it, it's true what you're saying. They do want to, it's a power grab. They want to, you know, grab guns and honestly our free speech just to, you know, basically without impunity you know, without any accountability like that and um and you can always hope that people you know wake up to it and try to actually actively do something about it exactly yeah it, people will only begin to react and push back when they see the left going as far as they are going now again you see australia literally setting up covid tents outside of private homes so the military can go door to door do checks to make sure you're not positive and now again in canada now handguns which usually the left here in america never touches handguns they always say you know they try to say oh if it was a handgun this is what tammy duckworth said uh, on an interview the other day she said oh if it had been a handgun there would be so much many less dead babies than there would be if it had been an assault rifle and I'm like, first of all, first off, oh, so- uh, that kind of sounds like abortion. <laughs> I was gonna say, now you care about dead babies, huh? Interesting. So it's fine if you kill them beforehand, but you know, once they're born. Uh, although, again, now they seem to support killing them even after birth, as we see in Virginia with a, or used to see in Virginia with Ralph Northam, and then we're seeing now in California. But yeah, they love to use it as a talking point. But either way. The left loves to say, oh, no, handguns are okay, but big, bad, black, scary assault rifles that the military uses, those are bad. 
Canada Trudeau over here, you know, Justin Castro was like, LOL, nope, all guns are gone, boys. All guns, handguns, BB guns, pop guns, cap guns, those are all gone. So it really is that if people think that is not the end goal for the left here in America, then they are dreaming. Yeah, that's that's, that's a pipe dream here that they're trying to push for. And it, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen, but you never know. Like they've, they're trying to pack the court now and they're, mm -hmm. you know, using all these crazy executive orders that just make no sense um honestly who's to say that they you know don't impose some you know type of lockdown again and then they say oh you know due to the increase you know radicalization of a uh, certain use we need to take handguns and, and you know et cetera et cetera um <laughs> you just see the list thing over itself you know trying to make its point with like jerry nadler can't mm -hmm. even find like uh the ages of like, oh, when you should go to the military and when you should own a handgun or own a gun and, you know, all these different things. Um, it just shows how hypocritical they are. Um, and again, you just hope that people wake up and see it. Exactly. The same party that wants to lower the voting age to 16 and wants to say that three-year-olds can decide their gender says, oh, no, no, you, you shouldn't be able to buy a gun until you're 21. You can literally go fight and die in a foreign war. For your country or for, you know, the military industrial complex, for the globalists, whatever or, they or want. Or another country. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. It's just absolutely unreal. And I, on that fun side note, too, it's so funny to think about Jared Nadler. I remember that, that press conference when he was in front of the Supreme Court, like, leading the charge, announcing, we are going to pack the Supreme Court, and just seeing him next to everyone else, he's literally four feet tall. It's, it's, I just always thought it was a funny thing. Especially when you consider now, New York lost a seat in their census, by the way, which means he got combined, his district got combined with another one, with another incumbent named Carolyn Maloney. So they're running against each other now. So there is a chance that uh, Nadler could go down in the primary, which would be quite glorious. I, I'm rooting for her all the way in that case and she's obviously not much better but Nadler is just such a repulsive little goblin that I just really want to see him go down especially for the Supreme Court packing but many other things she's gonna I think she's gonna be more progressive or less she's gonna run yeah she's gonna run as more progressive than him and also got the woman card going for her um but again he is just so much more prominent he is one of like the top figures in the Democratic Party it's like if Adam Schiff were to get primaried out you know I would support him getting primaried out by a more progressive person who's less famous rather than someone like him who is very prominent as a leading figure in the Democratic Party, chair of the uh, the House Intelligence Committee, among other things. Or uh, Judiciary Committee, excuse me, not Intelligence. Yeah, just a, just a hit at this establishment would, would be great. Um, mm -hmm. But at the at the extent of, you know, our country going, you know, in a worse place, I'm not sure if I, if I would like that. But, uh, yeah, I, I would like to see him unseated. That would be great. It, it would be quite hilarious. I can't imagine what he would go on to do. I mean, you try... Picture him trying to become a lobbyist or something after the fact, and you know he walks in through the door like to the 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 front office of whatever company he's lobbying for, but he's too short to see over the front desk. And the woman at the desk is like, hey, "Who who came in through that door? Where is he?" <laughs> he's just absolutely. I, I see him waddling around. You see videos of him from the '90s, by the way, when he first got elected. He literally looks like Newman from Jerry Seinfeld. I'm like, how is this even a real person? How, how is Harry, how is Jerry Nadler a thing? I don't understand. He's he's almost almost the same level of fascination I have as someone like Zuckerberg, where I'm like, that dude literally isn't human. Like, I don't think Jerry Nadler's not human, but he is just such an outrageous, rotund, goblin caricature. I'm like, how is he the way he is? He just it fascinates me. But again, I really want to see him go down. So we'll see how that plays out in that primary coming up soon. And that, unfortunately, is all the time we have left for this very special edition of The Right Take. Thank you again, Patrick, for agreeing to fill in in Jacob's absence in the meantime. And I look forward to collaborating with you again in the future and getting you on with Jacob at the same time. We can start having broader roundtable and panel discussions with you and with other friends of mine and other friends of Jacob. The Right Take Network is officially expanding, guys. We have so much more content for you planned out and more. As always, be sure to tune in for our latest content and updates at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media websites where we are available at righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And as always, if ever you guys are feeling so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.